the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. About seven minutes after four o'clock is our time. James Blend is producing today's program. Clark Hilton is engineering. Today we're going to talk with Lorraine Varela. She is the author of Planned from the Start. In fact, she plays a role in the movie Unplanned, uh, making it to the big screen. We'll talk with her about that as well as her devotional plan from the start, joy, forgiveness, grace, comfort, and hope. We're also going to talk in the five o'clock hour with Jarrett Stepman. He is an editor and commentator, I should say commentary writer uh, for the Daily Signal. He co-hosts the Right Side of History podcast. We're going to talk about partisans who are looking for ways to rearrange government to benefit their own party. And we'll talk with Romina Bacha. She's the director of the Grover M. Herman Center for the Federal Budget. We're talking about Social Security Administration that is looking at, particularly disability, looking to social media or at least looking for authority to look at social media and determining as a small part of their decision-making process, determining who is eligible uh, to either get disability benefits or to continue to receive uh, disability benefits. She'll join us later in the five o'clock hour as well. Some of the headlines from uh, the day Beto O'Rourke predicts that if he wins the 2020 Democratic presidential nomination, he'll take his native state of Texas in the general election. Speaking with reporters after holding his first event in New Hampshire as a presidential candidate, he said, yes, I think we can win Texas. I think we've proven we know how to campaign. The former congressman also said he would consider lowering the federal voting age to 16, scrapping the Electoral College, increasing the number of justices on the Supreme Court and eliminating the filibuster in the Senate. Again, we'll talk more about that in the uh, five o'clock hour. And Vice President uh, Joe Biden appears to be inching closer to launching a 2020 campaign. I don't know how many days you can say that in a row uh, and it still be interesting. You know, these guys, they say, I'm thinking about it. I'm going to run. I'm the. It's just part of the process. Anyway, the former Vice President Joe Biden told a group of supporters yesterday that he plans to run for president in 2020 and needs help securing contributions from donors, according to a report. He ranks uh, high in the polls among Democratic favorites and said he wanted to raise uh, cash comparable to what fellow uh, Democrats Beto O'Rourke and Bernie Sanders have already raised shortly after they announced their candidacies. A knowledgeable source is uh, telling the uh, Wall Street Journal. And in recent days on the campaign trail, various 2020 Democratic presidential candidates from Senator Elizabeth Warren, Senator Cory Booker, Beto O'Rourke and everybody in between have called for transforming American institutions like eliminating the Electoral College, changing the way the Supreme Court justices are selected and how many of them are there are, lowering the voting age, ending uh, voter ID laws, which they consider racist. Well, Democrat critics uh, such as President Trump's senior campaign advisor and daughter-in-law Laura Trump told America's Newsroom on Tuesday that the party's still upset over the outcome of the 2016 election and is already panicking about 2020. Still, one Democratic presidential candidate, former U.S. Representative John Delaney of Maryland, thinks it's a waste of time for candidates to talk about the Electoral College. 
Well, the Supreme Court on Tuesday handed the president and his administration a victory in its battle to clamp down on illegal immigration by making it easier to detain immigrants with criminal records. In the case before the justices, a group of mostly green card holders argued that unless immigrants were picked uh, picked up immediately after finishing their prison sentence, they should get a hearing to argue for their release while deportation proceedings go forward. But in a 5-4 decision yesterday, the Supreme Court ruled against them, deciding that federal immigration officials can detain non-citizens at any time after their release from local or state custody. In two other cases, Gorsuch and Kavanaugh were on opposite sides. Former Obama White House counsel and Clinton-linked attorney Greg Craig may soon be charged by the Justice Department for engaging in illegal unregistered overseas lobbying in a case initially probed by special counsel Robert Mueller. If charged, Craig would be the first Democrat to face prosecution amid the long-running Russian investigation. Now, it's interesting because they sort of seem to be picking and choosing to whom they're going to apply charges of illegal, unregistered overseas lobbying. Some who have done it have not been charged. Others who have done it have been charged. So we'll see what happens in this case. And Britt Hume says this, those lines of separation... Uh, referring to the why President Trump and uh, Mr. Koppel are right about the mainstream media. He says those lines of separation have become increasingly blurred. And in the age of Trump, as Koppel suggested, they've gone completely out of the window because of the sense among journalists that the election of Donald Trump constitutional constituted rather a national emergency. And it was their duty as patriots to resist it and to do all that they could do to undo the presidency, which they have assiduously tried to do. And we see it reflected constantly referring to Ted Koppel, of course, the uh, famous uh, journalist reflecting back on his colleagues today. And the Supreme Court, uh, well, actually, I've already I've already told you about that. I'm not going to tell you again. According to the Daily Caller, law enforcement officials are confiscating substantially larger amounts of methamphetamine as Mexican drug cartels increasingly push the drugs into the United States markets. A drug tracking system from the Drug Enforcement Administration, or DEA, indicates that a total of 347,807 law enforcement meth seizures were submitted to various labs across the country in 2017, according to the Wall Street Journal. The number is a 118% hike from 2010 submissions. U.S. meth-related deaths hit 6,762 in 2016, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. This is approximately 3.5 times the amount of 2011. Yet Senator Kirsten Gillibrand this week had the audacity to suggest there are no security issues related to immigration. Well, the United States is bristling at the suggestion that Germany might miss its own defense spending target, which is already short of the NATO goal, stabbing the president in the back. Finance Minister Olaf Scholz's budget plan foresees Germany's defense spending rising to 1.37 percent of the nation's the nation's income in 2020, but declined by 1.25 by 2023. NATO countries have pledged to move towards spending 2 percent of GDP on defense and Chancellor Angela Merkel's government had pledged to increase spending to 1.5 percent by 2024. Well, on Tuesday, CNN trumpeted that the network had won the Walter Cronkite Award administered by USC's Norman Lear Center and announced by the USC Annenberg School for Communication and Journalism for the Parkland Town Hall in which NRA spokeswoman Dana Loesch uh, was booed and even called a murderer, according to the Daily Wire. Norman Lear Center director Marty Kaplan groused, if the press is the enemy of the people, then being on the this enemy's list is a badge of honor for those exceptional journalists, end quote. Yet the joke's on her. The accompanying press release ironically declared, Cronkite Award proves that facts matter. 
The award is as worthless as CNN. And for the record, Trump's judicial nominees are being treated very differently than those of previous presidents. Those 91 judges, for example, have received a total of 1,824 votes against their confirmation in 782 days. When Barack Obama was president, it took 2,123 days to rack up this many negative votes, and he had to appoint 282 judges to do it. Trump's 91 judges have received more negative confirmation votes than the 2,653 judges confirmed to the same courts during the entire 20th century combined. Hmm. Well, an Islamic State spokesman on Monday called on the group's followers to violently retaliate against nonbelievers in response to the massacre of 50 people at two mosques in the New Zealand city of Christchurch last week. The scenes of the massacres in the two mosques should wake up those who were fooled and should incite the supporters of the caliphate to avenge their religion, end quote. Abu Hassan al-Majir said in a 44-minute audio recording. An eye for an eye. And the BBC reports people don't become fully adult until they're in their 30s, according to brain scientists. Research suggests people aged 18 are still going through changes in the brain, which can affect behavior and make them more likely to develop mental health disorders. Nancy Pelosi wants to lower the voting age to 16. You might want to read that BBC report. But 30? Really? You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We will be back momentarily. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 20 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Later in the program, we're going to talk about the uh, rancor that that hyperpartisan hyperpartisan politics can produce. And every once in a while, you need some encouragement that it's possible to recover from the uh, fractures that we're experiencing as a, as a country, politically and culturally. Well, one such um, mode of encouragement you might find in the movie that's going to be released on the 5th of April, titled The Best of Enemies. Now, it's an unusual title, but it is an unusual story. It is a true story. It's untold largely uh, about an unlikely relationship and later a friendship between two activists. One is Anne Atwater, an African-American who's concerned about Uh, Black children being allowed to uh, function in a desegregated education system. And C.P. Ellis, who, against all odds, is a member of the Ku Klux Klan. He's a leader among the Klan. And the two of them agreed to collaborate on some kind of solution. They came together to help initiate change in their community. This is in Durham, North Carolina. Now, this seems like an impossible pairing. And yet the pair of them were able to accomplish some significant things in their community and actually forge a friendship. Now, how is that even possible? From our vantage point in the 21st century, looking back, it seems impossible. And yet, as we're concerned about some of the fractures that we're experiencing, I think you'll find some real encouragement and insight here. The story will inspire It uh, provides a sense of optimism that divisiveness within our current times can, in fact, be healed. It's powerful. It's thought provoking. Uh, Taraji Hinson plays um, uh, the female lead and Atwater and Sam Rockwell. Names you might be familiar with. He plays C.P. Ellis, the uh, Klan member to whom uh, she is befriended. It's a powerful, true story of a black female activist, a real hero, leading the charge for change in the 1970s for her community, and a member of the Klan who is willing to make the kind of adjustments in thinking uh, and in policy that resulted in a, a transition that transformed everyone involved. The Best of Enemies in theaters on April the 5th. Let me encourage you to check that out. Let's see, 1980, 1976, on this day in 1976, kidnapped newspaper heiress 
Patty Hearst is convicted of armed robbery for her part in a San Francisco bank holdup. It was carried out by the Symbionese Liberation Army. First time I ever heard of that group was during this incident back in 1976. And on this day in 1969, John Lennon marries Yoko Ona in uh, Gibraltar. On this day in 1854, the Republican Party of the United States is founded by slavery opponents at a schoolhouse in Ripon, Wisconsin. By the way, at three, let's know, 2.58 this afternoon, spring sprung. So happy spring. We are officially out of winter and into spring. And certainly looking out the window here, it confirms that status. Um, Sadly, we're going to get some colder weather later this week, but I think we're out of the woods when it comes to the very cold and weather and the snow that we experienced just days ago. It's been a wonderful transition. Well, stepping all over his message in Ohio, President Trump continued his attack on the late I emphasized the late Senator John McCain on Wednesday during a speech to workers at an army tank plant, the last in the United States in Ohio, slamming the deceased lawmaker for his support of the United States wars in the Middle East and his infamous vote against repealing and replacing the Affordable Care Act. I think at the heart of it all, however, is the Trump dossier and the role that he played in making that available. Well, after touting his administration's progress in combating the Islamic State in Syria and the United States' recent economic successes, the president tore into McCain's legacy and in an unusual remark took credit for the late senator's state funeral in Washington late last year. I endorsed him at his request, gave him the kind of funeral he wanted, which as president of the United States I had to approve, Trump said. I don't care, but I didn't. Uh, get a thank you. Apparently from the deceased, he didn't get a Anyway, uh, I never liked him much. He went on to say, I really probably never will. Well, of course, he's deceased, so there's no opportunity for anyway, stepping all over what could have been a very positive message. Well, the president then went on with a laundry list of complaints he's um, held against McCain from an ally of the late senator reportedly handing over the so-called Steele dossier to the FBI to his support for American intervention in Afghanistan and Iraq. Um, I think enough said about that. Unfortunate to have uh, squandered an opportunity. Anyway, during a joint uh, White House press conference just prior to his arrival in uh, in Ohio with Brazilian President Jal um, Balasarno. OK, I probably didn't get that right. President Donald Trump said something is has to be done about social media platforms like Twitter and Facebook censoring conservatives, calling it cons- collusion. Well, Daily Caller White House correspondent Sagar uh, in Jetty asked Trump, you tweeted in support of Congressman Nunez's suit against Twitter. That's part of a larger discussion that Senator Josh Hawley's uh, been leading about making social media companies liable for the content that is on their platform, which they're not currently. Is that an idea or a change in law that you would support? Uh, we have to do something, I tell you, the president uh, said in response. I have many, many millions of followers on Twitter, and it's uh, different than it used to be. Things are happening. Names are taken off. People aren't getting through, the president said. You've heard the same complaints, and it seems to be uh, if they're conservative, if they're Republican, if they're in a certain group, there's discrimination and big discrimination. Well, Trump used the word collusion to describe social media's censorship of conservatives. We use the word collusion very loosely all the time, and I will tell you there is collusion with respect to that because something has uh, to be going on, he went on to say. In any event, uh, suggesting that as Mr. Nunez's lawsuit moves forward, which the prospects of 
uh, success are questionable. Uh, nonetheless, more attention being drawn to concerns about who's being allowed on the platform and who is being censored. Well, the majority of individuals and groups targeted in House Judiciary Committee Chairman Jared Nadler's sweeping request for documents as part of an expansive Trump probe have missed the Nader imposed deadline to respond. It's been learned that raising questions about whether the chairman is facing his own resistance. Although the powerful Democratic committee chairman touted the responses he has gotten in a press release and cable news interviews this week, GOP uh, committee uh, sources say that just eight of the 81 agencies, entities and individuals that were sent requests actually met the Monday deadline. The request came as part of Nadler's probe into alleged obstruction of justice, public corruption and other abuses of power by President Trump announced earlier this month. The way Democrats are characterizing the responses to their investigation is an exaggeration of epic proportions. A source familiar with the investigation uh, said to speaking to the media earlier today, earlier this week, Nadler said the committee had received a response from a large number of the recipients, and many of them had either sent or agreed to send documents to the committee. Well, those documents already number in the tens of thousands, Nadler said in a press release on Monday. Last, or I should say Monday evening, Nadler appeared on MSNBC's Rachel Maddow, again saying tens of thousands of documents have been submitted to the committee. A lot of people have responded. Entities have responded. Some have said that they will work with us. Some have said they will respond if we give them a subpoena. Nadler said, uh, speaking to Maddow, we will be talking to people, seeing if uh, we can reach accommodations with them. Ultimately, people have to respond to us unless the president personally votes an executive privilege, which is a rare thing. He added, they have no immunity. They have to respond to us. So while Apparently, the response has been relatively light. The few that have responded have responded with a large number of documents, and the probe will continue. Nebraska's governor said this is the worst flooding damage in that state's history. Well, more than 70 cities in Nebraska have issued emergency declarations, while more than a dozen states have issued flood watches and warnings. The total amount of damage is already worth hundreds of millions of dollars, and it's expected to continue rising as the Midwest braces for additional flooding. But in no place is the damage more apparent, perhaps, than the farming sector. For farmers and ranchers in the Midwest, the floods came at a particularly bad time in the midst of falling incomes, rising bankruptcies, and the negative effect of a year-long U.S.-China trade war, as first reported by the New York Times. Well, the number of farms filing for bankruptcy already spiked following low prices for corn, soybeans, milk, beef, according to analysis from the Federal Reserve Bank of Minneapolis. In the 12-month period ending in June, 84 farms filed for bankruptcy in Wisconsin, Minnesota, North Dakota, South Dakota, and Montana, double the number over the same period in 2018, or excuse me, 2013 and 2014. Farmers suffering and these uh, recent events, the fallout from the storm, making things worse there. All right, we're going to take a break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Zero Rest. When we return, we'll talk with Lorraine Varela. Her book, Planned from the Start, Joy, Forgiveness, Grace, Comfort, Hope. How could those words be associated with a book on abortion? We'll talk with Lorraine Varela when we return. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 36 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, as one of the youngest Planned Parenthood clinic directors in the nation, Abby Johnson was involved in upwards of 22,000 abortions and counseled countless women 
on their reproductive choices. Planned Parenthood is responsible for 25% of the abortions in the United States, and yet they refer to themselves as uh, what they do as women's health care. Well, Abby's passion surrounding a woman's right to choose led her to become a spokesperson for Planned Parenthood, fighting to enact legislation for the cause she so deeply believed in, until the day she saw something that changed everything, an abortion. Unplanned, the movie, tells the story of Abby Johnson. She ran a Planned Parenthood facility. Her view of abortion was drastically altered when she actually witnessed an ultrasound-guided abortion and watched a 13-week-old infant fight for its life. Planned from the start picks up where unplanned ends. Author Lorraine Varela says one of four women will have an abortion by the time she turns 45. She offers healing and hope for those who have chosen abortion in the past. And her devotional does just that. Well, Lorraine Marie Varela is the author of Powerful Movements in the Presence of God and Love in the Face of ISIS. She and her husband, Gabriel, co-founded Inspiring Faith International, a ministry to help people from all walks of life draw closer to God. Together, they co-led a prayer and ministry team on the film set of Unplanned. Lorraine and Gabriel live in the Los Angeles area and can be found online at inspiringfaith.us. She joins us today to talk about this powerful devotional Planned from the start, a healing devotional titled Joy, Forgiveness, Grace, Comfort, Hope. Words you don't usually associate with abortion, but this book will lead you into that kind of grace. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much. It's such an honor to be with you today. Well, it's an honor to have you on the program. Um, Let me invite you to share a bit of Abby Johnson's story, the new film Unplanned that's soon to be released, and what your role was in making this movie. Well, I think you did a beautiful job of describing Abby's story and what the viewers can expect to see um, from the movie Unplanned. The role that I have in the movie is that um, as a screenwriter, I was working with the directors on a different project uh, that I had written, and the Lord told them one day to put it aside that Unplanned was going to go first. So they gave me a call, and they said that that's what the direction the Lord was leading them in, and would we, would my husband and I be willing to um, be the leaders of the of a prayer team of a prayer movement over the film, and would we come on set and lead a ministry team? So leading up to the filming of Unplanned, I led a prayer team um, daily for about six months before we even stepped foot onto mm. the set. Yeah, uh, tell and us. So, yeah, please go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, it's okay. <laughs> I was going to ask you, how did you pray in anticipation for this movie uh, being made? And what your, were your concerns as this very yeah. poignant story uh, that really shines a bright light on an organization that's extremely powerful and influential in our culture was about to be exposed in ways it hadn't on the big screen before? I think that's an excellent question. Nobody's, no one's asked me that yet. Um, the thing is, is that prior to coming on set and prior to being um, given this opportunity, I had written a, a prayer strategy guide over ISIS and the Middle East just a year earlier, and the Lord had taken me through a whole series of learning about how to pray His name and how to bring His name as a covering over different areas that causes concern. So I had learned through writing that prayer strategy guide called Love in the Face of ISIS on how to pray and how that's just relatable to us here today. So we pray for the covering of His presence. We pray for the covering of his peace. We pray for healing. Um, And then there's just seven covenant names that we use. And so I I patterned the strategies off of those strategies that I had learned in writing um, my book, Love in the Face of Isis. And so each day was one of those prayer strategies Mm. um, relating to the Lord's name. Well, that tells me something about the movie and the kind of powerful story, um, powerfully and prayerfully told, 
uh, that I think is going to have an impact on on the culture. Now, this is a devotional that you say is really the the next step following the movie, because once the movie is released, it demands some sort of response. Describe what you uh, see this devotional doing as helping in that healing journey, because many of your viewers will have had abortions, will have been connected to abortion decisions or whose lives have been impacted by abortion will be in that uh, that theater, that audience. Right. Well, you really hit on something there when you said that they'd be impacted by what they see, because one of the things that struck me, even as an audience member, I've worked on this film, but when I saw it for the first time, I realized the power of this film to really highlight truth in a way we haven't seen before. And it's all about the seeing. We couch our our understanding of abortion through our language. And so instead of saying it's a baby, we'll call it a fetus and we distance ourselves. Mm -hmm. And we've, we've covered ourselves in a cocoon through language. But this movie really unmasks abortion and you cannot unsee what you've seen. And because of that, and because of what we saw happening on the film set, we recognize the anointing and the power of this film to uncover um, wounds that have been hidden um, in shame for years and sometimes decades. Women that came onto our film set as our guests started to open up and say, I had an abortion 40 years ago, and I never told a person, never told a soul. And we're seeing, we saw cast members that were um, uncovering abortion. And so what was happening is the lid of shame was being un- un- taken off so that healing could come in. And that's really the first step is just being able to acknowledge that a life was lost and to be able to walk through that grief process if you've never done that before. One of the things your devotional does is not only speak to a woman who may have had abortion, but you include those who have been impacted in other ways. And that may, in in many cases, involve men as well. That's correct. Sure. It's the man who forced a woman to have an abortion or coerced or was just complicit with her desire and didn't know how to say no. It's not just the man who is, who's been involved, but it's also parent. You know, there are many parents who take their children out of shame to an abortion clinic, even those in the church, pastors who've taken their daughters to have an abortion because they didn't want that type of shame on their ministry. And so we, we see those people in need of healing as well. It could be a friend who drove a friend out of a compassionate heart wanting to just help in a crisis situation and not knowing what else to do and then living with that regret for years. So abortions arms reach wide. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, what are some of the key areas of emotional pain that men and women suffer post-abortion? Well, there were five. And it's what's interesting to me is that it's not just the pro-life movement that have identified these areas, but it's also the pro-choice movement that have identified that there are key areas of emotional pain. One that we just talked about was grief. Um, That one's really huge. There's, There's guilt. There's shame and regret and depression, and those are the five five key areas that the Lord doesn't want to leave people in those areas of pain, and for every area where there's suffering, he has an antidote of peace through, as you mentioned earlier, joy and forgiveness, grace, comfort, and hope. Now, how is uh, planned from the start structured to begin that healing process, and how does that begin? What I wanted to do when I set out to write this book was to find people who had been touched by abortion, who had been affected by abortion in their life, and found healing by the hand of God. So there are five testimonies of supernatural healing, and I'd say every healing is a supernatural healing, and um, everybody's journey is a little bit different. So I, I interviewed four women and one man who had gone through abortion and came out on the other side healed through a journey that they went with the Lord. There's power and testimony, and I say, if God could do it for them, he could do it for you. 
And then following the, each testimony, there are eight days of a devotional um, opportunities to go deeper in just um, receiving the joy over grief or the forgiveness for guilt. And so um, the eight days are structured just with a, a scripture verse, um, a devotional message, and then some questions that just help um, probe deeper into um, the heart of God and how he how he would want to respond to you. So um, I'm just opening up the book right now randomly, and, and one of the questions in a pause for reflection would be, do you believe that Jesus is the healer of your heart? Of your heart? Is it difficult to accept that he cares about every facet of your life, especially in those areas that continue to cause you pain? What truth do you find in his word that confirms his love for you? And so the questions are meant just to be a jumping point um, for just a time of journaling and sitting in the quietness um, of your of your home and in your own personal space and let, letting the Lord minister to your spirit. We're talking with Lorraine Marie Varela. Her book is titled Plan from the Start, a healing devotional, joy, forgiveness, grace, comfort, hope. There is freedom available, and we're going to continue our conversation on that very subject in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 51 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with Lorraine Marie Varela. She's the author of Plan from the Start, a healing devotional. It features joy, forgiveness, grace, comfort, and hope. Not words normally associated with one who has had an abortion experience, but this is an introduction to the grace and the love of God. And it's a wonderful follow-up and companion to the movie that will soon be released, titled Unplanned. Now, in the book, you um, uh, you feature uh, the stories of many who have had uh, encounters with abortion and have experienced healing. You told us a little bit of a story just before the break. Can you tell us about the stories in this book from people who have experienced that kind of healing? Sure. One of, well, I start with a story with a woman named Annette, who was one of our prayer ministry partners on set, actually. And Annette was 19 years old when she had an abortion. And what was so compelling to me about Annette's story is that she talked about how the moment that she had her abortion, she knew that she had taken a life, but she had no place or space to grieve her loss because the people around her said, well, nothing happened. You didn't do anything wrong. You just removed a piece of tissue. It's just an abortion. And why are you grieving? And so she said that she had no space to grieve and that grief is the first place for healing to begin because grief acknowledges that a life was lost. And so we start with her story to talk about the power of allowing that grief to come to the surface so that the Lord can then um, bring healing to that part of your heart. And there are other compelling stories uh, in the book as well. You make the point that journaling is a very powerful tool to bring healing. How does journaling help uh, to go through that process that begins with grief but doesn't end there? Right. Well, for me, one one of the things that's so powerful about journaling is, first of all, if you've had an abortion, most likely you've been hearing a lot of negative messages in your heart that doesn't come from the heart of God, that you're not worthy, that, you, that you've committed the unpardonable sin, that what you've done is unforgivable. And those are just the lies and the accusations of the enemy. So we've done a really good job of tuning into what the enemy has to say, but sometimes we haven't done as good of a job of tuning into the heart of God. And what journaling does is just so powerful to allow truth to begin to well up from our innermost 
Spirit as we're reading the Word of God and we're coming into agreement with what He says, and we're learning how to tune into what His heart is for us. And so um, because there's nobody looking over your shoulder to see if you're doing it right, you know, you're able to just bring out the innermost part of your heart and what you're feeling and let the Lord just lead you through and, and guide you through this journey of healing. How have you found uh, journaling to be helpful in and effective to heal your own heart, the wounds of the heart? Well, um, I have to give a full disclosure um, that I have not personally had an abortion. And um, the directors, Carrie Carrie Solomon and Chuck Consulman, um, had invited me to write this devotional knowing that I am not a Mm post-abortive woman. And it was so interesting because I was speaking with somebody in the church who said, Lorena, it's a really good thing that you haven't had an abortion because there's been so much shame in the church to talk about this. And women have gone through and men have gone through abortion need to know that there is grace to cover their sin from those that haven't. You know, they feel like there's been so much judgment. In fact, there was a study of over a thousand post-abortive women who had who were Christians in the church. And the question was asked, did you go to your pastor or to a leader in your church to discuss your decision or your abortion afterwards? And it was like 75% said no, because they felt like they would not be received well, and that the church was more willing to gossip about the situation than to provide help and healing. Mm. So there's just such an importance within the church to be able to lift off the shame, because we don't talk about the post-abortive woman and man. We don't talk about that. We talk about the sanctity of human life, but we never really feel like we have the freedom to reach in and talk to and address that situation specifically if you've had an abortion or not. What does the Lord have to say about it? Yeah. Well, how can the church get involved to bring healing to the men and women in their congregations who've been impacted by abortion? I say the first thing is to lift the lid of shame off of it by speaking about it. I think sometimes pastors feel like they want to talk about it, but they don't know what to say. They don't want to keep on more condemnation, not re- not realizing that by not saying something that that more condemnation is being heaped on. So I'd say be educated. There are organizations, there are pr- pregnancy resource centers that have helps for mm-hmm. pastors, um, guides that they can they can get a hold of, and um, just educate yourself on what what that person is experiencing because it's more than just having lost a child. Abortion has so many different um, consequences that people don't even realize as they go through it. I had talked with a woman who had had an abortion 40 years prior, and I asked her to read the manuscript. And as she read the manuscript, she was healed and reconnected to emotions that she had had long since been disconnected from because of her abortion. One of those areas is a lack, a disconnect from your children, your current children or future children, um, because that's what abortion does. It severs relationships. There's like a death that happens, and there's a severing of relationship with your children as well as with your spouse or your significant other. And so those are some of the things that pastors need to be aware of. You know, there can be drug addictions, addictions addictions to alcohol, um, food for comfort. There can be self-image issues and all these things that we think of as independent um, areas of concern. We don't realize they can have the root in abortion. Now, in addition to healing, is there a greater purpose for this book? And what do you believe will happen uh, if a person walks through these 40 days, this journey? Uh, what can, can they expect? Yes, what I love about this book is that it's really not just solely about somebody who's had an abortion, because it's such an overarching theme. And that theme is that 
God has a plan for your life, and He's had that plan since eternity began. And so many times, because of the choices that we make in life, we feel like we're disconnected with the plans that God had. We're not worthy to step into those plans. And so we kind of turn off that channel, and we don't, we don't understand His heart of love and His heart for our good and His heart for our future. It was a hope and a purpose. And so plans from the start, I love that it just gives that positive um, response what's really a negative unplanned nothing in God's kingdom has been unplanned over your life he's planned good for you he's planned hope he's planned future and it's just reconnecting um, your heart with his plans well this is a wonderful beginning to that healing process that walks the readers from beginning through to the end and I'm so grateful that this is a companion to a movie that I think is going to open many old wounds and acknowledge that there is grief that is the beginning of that process the book uh, once again is titled Plan from the Start, a healing devotional, joy, forgiveness, grace, comfort, hope. Lorraine, thank you so much for talking with us today. Georgine, it's been my pleasure. Thank you so much. Appreciate it so much. I want to mention that the uh, the movie Unplanned is uh, coming to theater soon. There's actually a... Um, uh, it opens in theaters nationwide on the 29th of this month. Um, There are some private showings. If you get an invitation, let me encourage you to attend. But it will be available in theaters um, on the 29th of this month. And uh, keep your eyes poised on the um, announcements for when and where movies are going to be held. We'll try to provide that information when it's available as well. We've got news and traffic coming at the top of the hour. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Six minutes after five o'clock, you're listening to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. Clark Hilton is engineering today's program. Later this hour, we're going to talk with Jarrett Stepman. He is an editor and commentary writer for The Daily Signal. He also co-hosts the Right Side of History podcast. We're going to talk about partisanship that's looking for ways to rearrange government to benefit a single party. We'll also talk with Romina Baccia. She's the director of the Grober M. Herman Center for Federal Budget. We'll talk about the Social Security Administration, particularly Social Security Disability, looking uh, to use social media for Uh, evaluating disability claims. They don't currently have the authority to do so, but they're in the process of um, trying to write rules that may permit them to do so. Well, after a two-week break, the Supreme Court is set to hear oral arguments in several cases during its March sitting. They're back in session. Among the issues the court's going to address are partisan gerrymandering for the second year in a row, racial bias in jury selection, and whether courts should defer to administrative agencies in interpreting their regulations. One of the cases to keep your eyes on, Rucho versus Common Cause, a district court uh, struck down North Carolina's congressional map that the Republican-controlled legislature had drawn back in 2016 as an unconstitutional political gerrymandering. And that simply means that they drew the lines to favor that party. Well, 15 years ago in Veith versus Jubilier, the Supreme Court held that challenges to partisan gerrymandering are not just... Um, Justicable. I've never heard that word, but it meant that the courts had no role to play. Well, writing for the court, Justice Antonin Scalia reasoned that federal courts lacked the authority to hear disputes raising political questions that are better left to the political branches. But Justice Anthony Kennedy left the door ajar to future challenges, suggesting in a concurring opinion that perhaps courts could hear these types of suits if judicially discernible and manageable standards could be found. Well, apparently those standards have been found. Just last term in Gill versus White, uh, Whitford, the Supreme Court once again was 
um, unpersuaded that any such standard exists and recognize that it may be impossible to take the politics out of drawing electoral district lines. Well, North Carolina case was already pending when the Supreme Court heard Gill, so the legislators uh, pin- petitioned rather the Supreme Court for review. The case was sent back to the district court for reconsideration in light of the Gill decision, which it required showing a district-specific injury. Well, back at the district court, the three-judge panel ruled for the challenge again, or for the challengers again, basing its decision on a laundry list of theories and the creation of a judicially manageable three-pronged test under the First Amendment. To make an already long story short, the Supreme Court is going to hear arguments in that case this next week. Then there's Flowers versus Mississippi. Before a criminal trial starts, a judge and the lawyers, they have to ask prospective jurors questions to determine if they should be selected for the jury. Now, the judge is going to strike prospective jurors who demonstrate that they would be difficult or rather have difficulty uh, being impartial. The lawyer from both sides, make, they can uh, exercise what they call preemptory strikes to remove prospective jurors without an explanation. They can just decide, no, we don't want you on the court. Well, in Baston, or rather Batson versus Kentucky, uh, the Supreme Court, and this is back in 1986, ruled that preemptory strikes may not be based on race. Well, Curtis Flowers, who is African-American, has been tried six times for the 1996 murder of four people at a furniture store where he previously worked. The Mississippi Supreme Court overturned his conviction and death sentence following several of those trials for prosecutorial misconduct. Well, throughout the six trials, the prosecutor, the district attorney, used um, preemptory strikes to remove the majority of African-Americans from the pool of prospective jurors. At the sixth trial... Evans allowed one black juror to be selected and struck five other black prospective jurors. Flowers was then convicted and sentenced to death. Well, the Mississippi Supreme Court affirmed Flowers' conviction, finding that the district attorney offered race-neutral reasons for striking out. Well, at the U.S. Supreme Court, Flowers argues that his 6th and 14th Amendment rights were violated when the prosecutor racially discriminated against five black prospective jurors. And he maintains that the district attorney's history of discrimination in jury selection should have been considered in that case. The Supreme Court is going to hear oral arguments on uh, that case. However, the court's um, uh, the however they rule in this case, uh, hopefully it will bring closure in a case that has uh, loomed over the town of Winona, Mississippi, for some 23 years. Then there's Kaiser versus Wilkie. In recent years, there's been an increasing uh, focus on the constitutional problems posed by the administrative state, our fourth branch of government. Now, Congress has deleted more and more of its lawmaking authority to unaccountable administrative agencies, which in turn. Uh, are insulated from direct supervision by the president, unaccountable and unelected by the people. Well, as a result, administrative agencies issue regulations that touch on nearly every aspect of American daily life, from the highways to health care with little accountability. Well, compounding that problem, the Supreme Court has created doctrines instructing courts to defer to the reasonable interpretations of administrative agency officials in the face of ambiguous statutory text and regulations. Well, one of these agency deference doctrines known as the Iyer Seminole Rock Defense, is directly challenged in the case they are going to hear, Kaiser versus Wilkie. 
James Kaiser, a retired Marine who served in the Vietnam War and suffers from post-traumatic stress disorder, filed a claim for disability benefits with the Department of Veterans Affairs. The VA denied his claims back in 1983 and in June of 2006. So he sought to have his claim reopened, identifying documents the VA didn't consider when it initially reviewed his claim. Well, the VA granted his claim for benefits and interpreting an agency regulation determined that he wasn't eligible for those benefits to be made retroactive to 1983. Well, he appealed to the uh, Court of Appeals for Veterans Claims, arguing that under his interpretation of the agency regulations, he was entitled. Well, at the Supreme Court, he argues that it's time to do away with these um, with this uh, deference because it violates the separation of powers, provides an unfair advantage to one party, the government, in litigation. And the court will be hearing that uh, those arguments um, as well. These are a few of the important cases that they're going to hear at the end of the month. Later this spring, the justices are going to hear oral arguments in more cases that include a challenge to the Trump administration's decision to include a citizenship question on the 2020 census and a First Amendment challenge to the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office's denial of scandalous trademarks. Uh, the justices should is- issue opinions in all of these cases this term um, by the end of June. Well, in reflecting on the corruption in uh, the college and university system, Walter Williams, who has been a part of that system, writes this. Federal prosecutors have charged more than 50 people involved in cheating and bribery in order to get their children admitted to some of the nation's most prestigious colleges and universities, such as Georgetown, Yale, Stanford, University of Texas, University of Southern California, and UCLA. As corrupt and depraved as these recent revelations are, they're only the tip of the iceberg of generalized college corruption and gross dishonesty. It's nearly impossible to listen to college presidents, provosts, and other administrators talk for more than 15 minutes or so before the words diversity and inclusion drop from their lips. But there's a simple way to determine just how committed they are to their rhetoric. Ask your average college president, provost, or administrator whether he bothers promoting political diversity among faculty. Political diversity. I'll guarantee that if he's honest or even answers the question, he will say he doesn't believe in that kind of diversity and inclusion. According to a recent study, professors who are registered Democrats outnumber their Republican counterparts by a 12 to 1 ratio. In some departments, such as history, Democratic registered professors outnumber their Republican counterparts by 33 to 1 ratio. I'm not sure about what can be done about education, but the first step toward any solution is for the American people to be aware of academic fraud that occurs at every level, every level of education. And we don't have time to get into this next story, so I'm going to drag this over into next um, into tomorrow. It has to do with uh, drag queens who are reading to children, one of whom was a sex offender. And some of the challenges that parents are facing with the indoctrination of very small, very young children. All right, we need to take a break. Up next, we're going to talk with Jarrett Stepman. He is the editor and commentary writer for The Daily Signal. He also co-hosts The Right Side of History, a podcast. We're going to talk about partisanship and how that is resulting in um, efforts to change and rearrange government to benefit one party over the other. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, Thomas Gallatin, in one of his uh, recent posts, points out that if you don't succeed in winning elections, then it must be the system that's at fault, and therefore the system needs to be changed. Well, that seems to be the course that we're seeing among Democrats, whether we're talking about eliminating the Electoral College, lowering the voting age, excluding the um, citizenship question from the 2020 census. 
um, extending voting rights to non-citizens and for those who are under the age of uh, 16. Here to talk with us about some of the changes that are being proposed that includes the Electoral College. And we just talked yesterday about the fact that Colorado became the 12th, well, the 11th state, if you add the District of Columbia, the 12th entity. Uh, to seed its um, voters to the popular vote. Uh, Jarrett Stepman joins us. He's an editor and commentary writer for The Daily Signal and co-host of the Right Side of History podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. Well, we've recently heard Elizabeth Warren's proposal to get rid of the Electoral College. Beto O'Rourke, he's proposing to stack the Supreme Court. Um, This is fierce partisanship at its best, um, or worst, perhaps, uh, that's looking for ways to rearrange the government to benefit a particular party. How uncommon is that, and what are we talking about here? I I think it is uncommon. I think it's a a reckless attitude of uh, any institution that their political movement doesn't include they seek to destroy, they seek to eliminate. I think that's a, a, a reckless thing. It's, it's interesting. So many people say that you know, President Donald Trump is uh, you know, a danger to our institutions while uh, basically saying, well, we should pack the Supreme Court or we should abolish the Electoral College, uh, an institution that has served this country for well over two centuries, the most stable, prosperous rec- republic in human history. I think that's a, I think that's a, a reckless thing, and I think it's a new thing. I think something that Americans have broadly agreed upon is that our institutions themselves. Now we disagree about many uh, political things, but the institutions themselves are something that we cherish, that we trust, that we believe in. The Constitution, the founders, that the republic, the, the, the republic that the founders created. All these things are essential. To say that because of a loss in an election or a few political setbacks that were to go through these things and destroy them, I think it's incredibly reckless behavior and somewhat unprecedented. Yeah, yeah. Well, as I mentioned earlier this month, Democrat-controlled Colorado became the 12th state plus the District of Columbia. They passed legislation that would mandate that its electoral college votes be given to the candidate who wins the national popular vote irrespective of which candidate wins the vote within their state. Now, this could effectively negate the unique will and voice of the people in uh, their own state. It, it seems like madness to me for the state to, to give up what the state has decided uh, they uh, is in their best interest in favor of a, a larger question. But this is just one example. Uh, it certainly is. It's an interesting thing. I mean, because a lot of the proponents of, of abolishing electoral college say that it's in, in, in favor of democracy, but in some ways you're actually taking democracy out of the hands of your own voters. I mean, that's what's so radical about this, is that they're throwing the, the will of the voters of their states to other parts of the country. I mean, how is that? That's not really dramatic at all. And I think that's what the danger with this effort to abolish the Electoral College. I mean, what it's really about is, you know, destroying the differences between the states. I mean, we're basically saying that the state should not have a, a role in our system, that we should just have, have our elections thrown to a mass plebiscite. I don't think that's what the founders envisioned for this country. And it, it, it damages and basically diminishes the, the vast and different interests that uh, occur across this country. I mean, it really destroys the kind of role and input of, of some of the smaller states. It basically makes it so that California and places like California and New York determine our elections in the large metropolitan yeah. centers. And I think that's a reckless thing. Yeah, in fact, it accomplishes the very thing they say they don't want it to uh, to accomplish, and that is the seed power to the two coasts 
uh, of the country. Another issue is Nancy Pelosi advocated lowering the voting age to 16. Uh, we're not talking about informed adults. We're talking about propagandized school children uh, who are much easier to entice. Uh, these are, um, are kids who cannot have alcohol or guns until they're 21. They're on their parents' insurance until they're 26. Uh, but uh, to, to give them the vote at 16 is somehow going to be in the best interest of the nation as a whole. I, I don't see it. Uh, not at all. I think it's a, an incredibly a wild thing to do. I think it's uh, certainly radical. And I think what the I think you hit the nail on the head here. I mean, we're, we're talking about a political movement that, in some ways, wants to infantilize young people. I mean, we're bumping up uh, yes. the age of smoking. We're bumping up the age of uh, gun ownership. These are things that have been pushed in California. I mean, heck, you're not even considered an adult until you're 26 years old. And yet, at the same time, we should be lowering uh, the voting age to high school students. Now, look, I mean, high school students should be getting involved politically. They should be trying to understand what their system is about. They should be learning about the American way of life. Citizenship is a vital aspect of our, our of what America is, not just voting, but other things as well. And I think this message that, well, the only thing you can do is you can vote, but all these other liberties that are kind of expected of an adult American uh, will be deprived from you. I think that really shows, I think that really has things in absolute reverse of, of how they should be in this quest for what they say is democracy. I kind of think they just hope that they can manipulate young people into embracing radical ideas. Now, another area that I hadn't really thought of in this way until I read a piece by Thomas Gallatin, uh, but Democrats are demanding that the coming 2020 census not include a citizenship question. And without differentiating uh, citizens from non-citizens, uh, particularly Democrat sanctuary areas, they can claim higher populations uh, and therefore greater electoral representation. So that at the at the core of all of this is how many representatives do you get based on the population without distinguishing those who are here in the country legally as citizens, those who are non-citizens or are in the country illegally. So there's a political implication even to that. Absolutely. I would say, again, a, a radical thing. I mean, again, these are people who talk about supporting democracy. But I mean, that very concept of essentially counting non-citizens as uh, voters, essentially, and that's what they're doing as part of the system, is very against the very preamble of the Constitution. We, the people of the United States, if people are not citizens of the United States, in what role do they have to participate in our elections? That's like saying uh, people in China should be able to determine American elections. That is, in many ways, incredibly anti-democratic. It's a reckless thing, and I think it goes to the heart of what the modern, unfortunately, progressive left has abandoned this idea that, you know, we're all generally for border enforcement, although we, you know, we say we're, we're for different, you know, have different views on immigration. I think this open borders idea, I think that's really a part of this. I think it's a, a radical change we've seen certainly in the last five to ten years. And I, I think a lot of the American people with common sense will see this as a, as a great departure from how our country treated this issue in the past. And the core the core goal is to gain power and to be able to hold on to it. Uh, we're talking about eliminating the Electoral College, lowering the voting age, excluding the uh, citizenship question on the uh, on the uh, census and so on. We're talking about changing the rules, moving the goalposts. But in some of these cases, not going through the process that the Constitution has prescribed for changing it, uh, but doing it in a, a sort of a backdoor way. The Electoral College, I think, is a perfect example. The states ceding their own uh, power in order to um, to reduce the uh, impact of the Electoral College. Uh, and essentially robbing their own voters of their will uh, going through the back door. I, it absolutely is going through the back door. I mean, I think even it's interesting that even even Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who is uh, very much on the left, she is, is not for the Electoral College. She wants it abolished. Says it would require a constitutional amendment to actually get rid of it. I mean, this this kind of plan to use this uh, state compact – 
shows how this is really a, a very narrow partisan movement that can't get the kind of support that is needed to change the Constitution. The founders very intentionally made it difficult to change the Constitution. Something very basic in the changing of how we run our country should not be left to, to a thin partisan majority. That's what the founders were very much worried about. Many on the progressive left simply want to go around that. They want to change the rules. They want to essentially break down the constitutional protections that we have. Now, that's obviously been eroding over the past uh, century, but I think that these kind of movements, these kind of radical transitions of our constitutional government uh, are certainly a dangerous next step. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Again, Jarrett Stepman is uh, an editor and commentary writer for The Daily Signal and co-host of The Right Side of History. James Madison wrote, the national unity that resulted from the collecting bloodletting of the revolution stif- uh, stifled rather the ordinary diversity of opinions on great national questions. Hence, no spirit of party connected with the changes to be made. Well, this would not be the case today. Partisan division Divisions are running deep, and as Elizabeth Warren's proposal to get rid of the Electoral College and Beto O'Rourke's proposal to stack the Supreme Court show, fierce partisans will always look for ways of rearranging government to benefit their own party. This is uh, not a benefit to the country as a whole, and regardless of which party you happen to be associated with at this time for the sake of the uh, republic, we would do well to do what's in the nation's best interest, not to either gain or retain power. Uh, as we're seeing today. All right, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Quick break, we will be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, the Social Security Administration has started to use, well, social media just like everyone else, and they're using it to screen your Facebook and Instagram posts to evaluate your disability claim. For example, you say, I can't do X, therefore I'm eligible for disability. But if you're posting pictures of yourself doing X, then perhaps, well, the Social Security Administration argues your disability claim will be denied or revoked. Well, here to talk with us about that is Romina Baccia. She's director of the Grover M. Herman Center for the Federal Budget. Welcome and thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Well, the Social Security Administration has a challenge on its hands, and that is to confirm or verify that claims that are being made are valid. Talk a little bit about what they are doing now, or at least proposing to do, in uh, using social media to help either support claims or to revoke them. Yes, so currently the Social Security Administration is prohibited by law from considering an applicant's or a current beneficiary's social media profile in order to make a disability assessment. So what are we talking about here? If you think back just a few years ago, a big fraud scandal was uncovered in New York City uh, with police officers who were defrauding Social Security disability insurance and during investigations it came uh, it was it was found that um, they had been uh, uh, riding around on jet skis um, if that's an image that you might recall and so the um, IG, the Inspector General of the Social Security Administration, has long advocated uh, for the administration to change this policy to allow the administration to review applicants' social media profiles to verify uh, disabilities or if there's something that uh, looks uh, like um, it's uh, fishy to be able to act on that. Like today, it is really... uh, 
the case that if an applicant applies and claims that the applicant is, for example, unable uh, to move around much or be physically active and social media evidence appears before the judge hearing the case about this applicant, um, they are not allowed to consider it at all. So they could be confronted with images of the applicant riding around on a jet ski, for example, and they would still have to grant them the disability benefits if that was the only evidence they had because they're not allowed to consider that evidence. And so the administration is talking about changing that policy to empower judges and disability uh, determination services to be able to use evidence like this when they're being confronted with it to influence the case. Now, the Social Security Administration hasn't outlined how it might use social media in screening these applicants yet. But I guess the concern is uh, data privacy concerns. When I go to my Facebook page, which is rare, um, the people who populate my, well, my viewers are people that I have friended. In the case of the the Social Security Administration, how would that relationship be forged or would they be given access to accounts that without the direct or express permission of those whose images they're viewing or would like to view? No, so primarily, and this is also the case with employers today who might look at the applicant's social media profile, they would never ask you to provide your password and social, and, and, and the government certainly wouldn't be hacking into your account to get this information. But there are many individuals who make their social media profiles freely available to the public mm-hmm. on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, and they're choosing to share all this information freely, and that is what we're talking about here, that public profiles, um, so there's no data privacy issues involved, um, to be able to use that information that is freely available to inform a case. Now, this wouldn't mean that the Social Security Administration would solely decide a case based on social media images, because those can also be highly misleading, uh, but but that they would be allowed to use it as one point of possible evidence as they're making their case. And the regulations for that would need to be written, just exactly how the administration would be allowed to use this information, what are restrictions on how they would be allowed to obtain this information. All of that would go through a public comment period where the administration would seek public input on how those regulations should be crafted to respect individuals' privacy and to make sure that uh, this disability determinations are made in a just and fair yeah. way. Even when they've essentially waived their right to privacy by making their information public. Now, one of the concerns that's been expressed is that this might slow the process of uh, reviewing claims or processing claims uh, because that would be additional information that would have to be considered. Your thoughts on uh, how this might impact the process and the speed at which the Social Security Administration, although speed and Social Security Administration don't typically go together, in making their uh, decisions? So it doesn't necessarily have to slow the process down at all. The primary drivers of the delays and the backlogs we see in the disability determination process are as a result of uh, structural problems with the law, one of which is that currently most applicants who go through a administrative law judge review have a lawyer. Their lawyer is paid for via back pay from the applicant. So the lawyer has an incentive to drag out the case, to delay the case, because that, um, the, the higher the payment that the lawyer will receive as a result of 
this being a winning case. So that's one of the driving factors. Also, there is uh, there's a shortage of administrative law judges. Um, the administration should consider hiring more and um, also providing more assistance to the judges so they don't have to build the cases on their own, which creates some of the delays, but that they would have assistance that put the case material together that, so that they can review it, and that could include um, social media as well. Mm-hmm. Now, I am certainly not an attorney, but what might we expect moving forward as the Social Security Administration outlines the approach that it would like to take and... Uh, Do you expect that there'll be much backlash at the suggestion, which seems perfectly reasonable to me as a taxpayer, that this would be an element among others uh, that would help to uh, determine the, the fitness or the viability of a claim? This is absolutely common sense to allow this information to be considered. It is already being considered in court in non-SSDI cases, so this would just extend an already existing policy to SSDI cases um, to be able to consult this information during adjudication of a claim Um, because it wouldn't be a primary means of deciding a disability case, but just additional information available. um, We are seeing backlash uh, there are some concerns from the disability community that it might uh, it might create a stigma for individuals with disabilities not to uh, be sharing a lot on social media in the event that they might fear that this could um, hurt their uh, disability benefits. Those are some concerns. The regulations will have to specify just exactly how this information uh, may be used. But overall, this is a common sense proposal that is long overdue and will help prevent the kind of fraud that we saw in New York City. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate your insight. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Again, Romina Bacci is the director of the Grover M. Herman Center for the Federal Budget. Interestingly, you know, I'm when I'm on Facebook or I'm on social media, oftentimes I will see a post and I'll recognize this is a post from five years ago. And the person who's posting it uh, believes this just happened. In fact, I saw one earlier today in which someone had passed away and they were they were posting it as if it had just occurred. These images are not always current. They they can be misunderstood, so it can be misleading. So the challenge will be to frame this in such a way that the Social Security Administration can see this as a flag rather than a determinant. And my understanding is the way they're approaching this is to see this as one small sliver of uh, the process to determine if a person may be filing a fraudulent claim. It seems reasonable to me, but there's certainly a lot to be worked out. And as I mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, the Social Security Administration has yet to outline how it might use social media in screening applicants, and that process is underway, uh, even though the proposal has raised some eyebrows. Uh, anyway, it's just a reminder that social media is a snapshot of your life that can be used in ways that you perhaps never envisioned. It can be misused. It can be misleading. It can be a whole lot of things. So being careful how we um, paint a portrait of ourselves on social media is uh, something we need to be mindful of pretty much all the time. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a quick break, and we will be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Now, Clark and I go back and forth on whether or not anybody cares what's on the program tomorrow. But I want to announce that tomorrow, I have no idea who our guests will be. So I guess we're even now, Clark, eh? <laughs> uh, anyway, we're working on some things for tomorrow. I don't have a 
a guest booked thus far. But on Friday, we are going to do what Fridays are all about here. Assuming there's no big breaking news story, we're going to focus on the lighter side of the news. But we certainly will break in if there is uh, breaking news as well. Well, Azusa Pacific University seems to be a bit confused. They have this year alone gone back and forth this um, this year on whether to allow students to date members of the same sex. Well, last week, the Southern California Christian College decided once again to remove a ban on romanticized same-sex relationships from its code of student conduct. Well, APU had initially made the same change in the fall, only to reverse that decision when the Board of Trustees said, Uh, It had never approved the change. Now, presumably, they've now considered it. APU is an open enrollment institution, which does not require students to be Christian to attend. And the handbook conveys our commitment to treating everyone with Christ-like care and civility. That's the provost, Mark Stanton, from APU. Our values are unchanged, and the APU community remains unequivocally biblical in our Christian evangelical identity. End quote. Well, Azusa Pacific, uh, which comes out of the Wesleyan tradition and continues to uphold a traditional view of marriage, doesn't require its students to be Christian, unlike about a third of uh, fellow uh, members of the Council of Christian Colleges and Universities that require students to sign a statement of faith. Well, APU prohibits uh, sex outside of marriage, and the student code revision represents uniform standards of behavior for all students applied equally and in a non-discriminatory fashion. Well, the student government and brave Commons, which is an LGBT student group at the university, opposed the administration's restrictions around same-sex relationships and had pushed for more clarity about the type of punishment students in same-sex relationships would face. Now, Brave Commons issued a response on Friday saying the ban removal offers equal treatment of LGBTQ plus students in relationships uh, as their homosexual or rather heterosexual peers. Well, back in December, it's really interesting because standing here in, what, March of 2019, this is a debate going on at Azusa Pacific University. As little as 10 years ago, 15 years ago, one would not have imagined this conversation being had with regard to the standards at the uh, university. But that's where the university, the church, where we find ourselves today. Well, back in December, two board members resigned due to a personal belief that APU has drifted from its orthodox principles. And this is an internal debate going on within the body of Christ in America. The board chairman, David Poole, told World Magazine, uh, releasing a statement to the APU community saying that he disagreed with their characterization. And while APU students, and again, Azusa Pacific University students, are not required to sign a statement of faith, faculty members are. Around the same time that the ban on student same-sex relationships was lifted for the first time last fall, the university had also dropped long-standing language from an eight-point statement on human sexuality, which declared homosexual acts, among others, are expressly forbidden by Scripture. Heterosexual, heterosexuality is God's design for sexual intimacy relationships, and humans were created as gendered beings to be fruitful and multiply. These revisions have remained on the website. Well, the text of their revised student handbook reads, as follows. We value sexual stewardship as an evangelical community of of disciples rather and scholars. We embrace the historic Orthodox Christian understanding of Holy Scripture. Azusa Pacific University holds that sexuality is a gift from God. Therefore, we seek to cultivate a community in which sexuality is embraced as a God-given as God-given rather and good and where biblical standards of sexual behavior are upheld. 
The APU community is committed to treating everyone with respect and Christ-like compassion. We are committed to applying uniform standards to all students in a non-discriminatory fashion. We believe that students are best supported if they are able to share their questions and concerns with trusted others and understand that concerns about sexuality may be difficult to disclose. In all such personal issues, we commit to discipling our students with discretion, sensitivity, discernment, grace, and truth so that they um, steward their sexuality and expressions of intimacy. Students make decisions based on historical biblical values. We affirm a biblical foundation for sexual relationships in full accord with the APU, APU Human Sexuality Statement. We believe God designed the covenant of marriage and that individuals remain celibate outside of that marriage covenant. That's the end of the uh, that portion of the statement. Well, evangelicals who have followed the flip-flop from outside of APU's community worry that what the school sets up as non-discrimination violates core beliefs on biblical sexuality. And this is the challenge for colleges and Christian colleges and universities across the country. Says uh, Danny Burke, who's the president of the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, which is an excellent a source for information on these subjects. The fundamental problem here is that Azusa Students Handbook failed to make a moral distinction between homosexuality and heterosexual relationships. Even when abstinent, they are not morally equivalent. Well, APU is also under financial strain, having announced at the start of this year plans to cut 6% of its teaching faculty positions uh, inside higher education uh, reported. Well, last fall, the school revealed that it had a $9.9 million operating deficit, the challenge across the board as well for Christian colleges and universities. One month after Moody's uh, investor service downgraded APU's bond rating into junk territory. Soon after, APU President John Wallace announced he would be out on uh, medical leave. Uh, I bring it up, uh, first of all, because this is a Christian uh, university of some standing, and uh, I think those of us in the body of Christ are following what's happening in the culture in general and on campuses more specifically. And it really points to the challenges that uh, these colleges and universities are facing. If you have uh, sons or daughters in a Christian college or university, it would be in uh, the best interest of all concerned to know what that college or university stands for, what their principles are, whether or not they stand on a biblical uh, view on the, these issues, and Azusa Pacific is just the latest example of trying to navigate the culture in a way that is welcoming to students who are um, believers but do not conform to the biblical standard on sexuality, are unbelievers, and have no regard for a biblical view on sexuality, and maintain a view on the subject that reflects a, a Christian worldview, Azusa Pacific University. By the way, it probably wouldn't hurt if uh, we prayed on some, with some regularity for these colleges and universities, for the men and women who occupy positions where these kinds of decisions are being made, who are facing tremendous pressure from within the university and from without, uh, specifically from the culture, uh, and the young people who attend these colleges and universities who are trying to um, understand what they believe or what uh, the scriptures teach and making decisions about whether they're going to follow the culture or they're going to follow what uh, what the Bible teaches. It's a. It's always been a challenging time to follow Jesus, uh, but the 21st century has some unique facets and features, um, certainly unique to us, and we would do well to pray for those young people and those who lead them on these campuses. All right. Uh, tomorrow, as I mentioned, we've got a number of things that we're working on. Okay, I have no idea what they are, but James informs me that there are just fascinating things ahead. 
we'll see how that uh, pans out. If you didn't have the opportunity to uh, listen in earlier in the day, I would encourage you to catch my conversation with Lorraine Varela. She is the author of Planned from the Start, Joy, Forgiveness, Grace, Comfort, Hope. This is connected with the uh, movie Unplanned that's uh, going to be released shortly. And we talked about opportunities to see the movie Uh, And uh, if you didn't have a chance to hear it live, I would encourage you to check it out on the podcast because it's an important conversation. And I think the movie is going to be very influential. It's the first of its kind um, to be released uh, in the country. So I think it has the potential to have a significant impact. Anyway, you can check that out at kpdq.com. Go to the Georgine Rice Show podcast and you can not only hear that conversation, but uh, conversations from previous programs as well. All right. I want to thank James Blend for producing today's program, Clark Hilton for engineering today's program, and thank you on this first day of spring. What we're just a couple of hours into spring. It was about two fifty-eight uh, this afternoon when spring sprung. So happy spring! Uh, thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day <laughs> on this this Wednesday. Have a good night. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.